Um, ah, ah, okay. Um, so, questions, thoughts, complaints, grumblings from this morning's message. Um, I'm sure that uh, Joel Olstein has got something going on this morning that, no. Um, Yes, Donna. Microphones. Mm. We are now, Donna, we're totally professional now. We're using microphones. There you go. Hold on. Well, there's apparently like four or five people who listen to this online. So they'd like to know what you're, you're being recorded, Donna. No. Is the red light on on the bottom? Yes. Okay. Yes? Okay. Um, your sermon made me think, and, and I try to do this. I, when I have problems with my mom, yeah. I try to think, you know, I'm the Christian. She's not the Christian. Mm. And your sermon on the enemies and stuff, um, I think about my mom mm. being the enemy and how I have Christ and she doesn't. So I try to help that way, but yeah. unfortunately I failed the test and came home. <laughs> so hopefully I've learned something, but I, I, th- I think about other people too, um, friends and stuff that you want so bad to be able to witness to and, and come to the Lord and, and, uh, and maybe they say something, you know, that offends you or whatever. And, but friends or family or anything, if you could just think to yourself, you know, you're the Christian be the example like Jesus was the right. example and you know and and just try harder to yeah put that behind you and be the christian and stuff like that but yeah. i thought of my mom when you when you said that because she's i made her my enemy at times because right. of things she says to me and stuff yeah. that way no and so. and that's going to be the way it is with all of us i mean that's why I, I think at the very least it's it's try we, we ought to all be trying to be willing to be more vulnerable we ought to be willing and you got to go back. But it's tough. People hurt us. People let us down. People, the Proverbs talk about our words can be like drawn swords. And, and uh, the power of life and death is in the tongue. I mean, that's not even physical assault. That's just verbal. And the challenge is we get back up and we, we try to go back. I mean, I don't, think, I don't think Jesus' command is such that we, we church discipline because someone fails. We get them back up. The bar is really, 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 really high. And we try, and we fail. And there are times where I talk to people, and it just it hurt, it hurts so much. Because you got to keep opening yourself back up to be being hurt. You took my cloak. Oh no! Now you took my inner garment as well. Okay, you know, I mean, and you're you're opening yourself back up to repeated offense. That's you hit me on one side of the face. Well, oh no, you did it again. You know, there's that element of it going on there that um, is tough. But I I think one of the themes that comes out of the New Testament is the apologetic power. I mean, I mean, you have apologists, the defense of the faith. And we think of apologetics as like, you get some like Ravi Zacharias or get somebody who's smart. And those guys are cool and all. But the New Testament seems to again and again affirm the strongest apologetic, the way they will know, the strongest ammunition you can give the Holy Spirit beyond the text of Scripture is to put up with suffering and do it well. That the world won't understand that. I mean, when we're doing well and you got your you got driving a nice car and you got a nice thing going on, you're praising God, you know, you score the touchdown and you point up to the sky. Like that's good. That's not impressive to the world. The world doesn't say, How on earth do they do that? 
when you're being mistreated and you read like what happens in the Hebrews, they rejoice. And you say, how on earth are you rejoicing? Well, I'm suffering for the sake of Christ and I have a treasure in heaven. People actually start taking you seriously. You know what I mean? Conversely, when we talk a good game about heaven, but the second anyone threatens our earthly security, we act like everyone else and the teeth and the fangs come out. Yeah, I mean, like take the Amish. My friend, use, my friend Chris uses the Amish as an example all the time. No matter what you think about the Amish, you get that they take seriously what they believe, right? And whatever you think about Muslim suicide bombers, they believe what they believe pretty sincerely, right? I believe what they believe is a lie, but they, they clearly believe. They're, they're convinced. And, and so there's, an, there's a compelling power in our own. Get, go, to, um, go back to First Peter. Um, this is littered in First Peter. First Peter could sort of be a companion piece to this morning's message. Um, go to chapter one. I just want to walk through First Peter a little bit. And this is going above and beyond your question, Donna. But this is a, this easily could have been two messages, and I thought eh, we'll try to squeeze it into one. And we went ten minutes late, and I apologize for that. Mike Doty pointed out that he was willing to turn the other cheek to me for that um, offense. Um, I, I told him that was very well played. And, uh, but there's, yeah. So First Peter chapter 1, and it's the same motivation. It's not sadism, and it's not some stoic, stiff upper lip, suck it up. It's, there's this treasure and reward put out in front of you, and look to that. That's the logic. So look at First Peter 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. So there's the ground, this unfading, imperishable, undefiled and secure inheritance in heaven. And we're right now, God is, God is guarding us through our faith. And you talk about the sovereignty of God. God's guarding you through faith. Gives you an idea of where the faith comes from. In this, verse 6, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible, filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So there, there's this whole trial stuff, and he, and he dives right back into it in chapter 2. Um, starting in verse um, 11. Beloved, I, earn you as, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, notice they're going to. Again, it's not if, it's when. Just like Jesus said, if they hate me, they'll hate you. When so I'm, I'm, I'm keeping my conduct honorable so that when they speak against me as an evildoer, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. There's the power, the compelling power, 
the convicting power of love and good deeds in the face of suffering and persecution. Keep going. Verse, then he enters into this whole notion of suffering. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or the governor sent by him to punish those who do evil and the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. How do you shut mouths? You do good when they blame you for doing evil. You do good when they do evil to you, and you silence them. Keeps going. This theme, First Peter hits this again and again and again. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. There's that whole not asserting your rights. But living as servants of God, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants or slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect. Not only to the gentle and good, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. What credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And then we get to the text we looked at at the end of the message. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. We've been called to unjust suffering. Christ leaving an example. The Greek is literally a hupogramon. You know those little stencils kids have that they trace their letters on? That's the Greek word for that. And you're supposed to trace your life around the model Christ left. And then Peter points out what amazing good God did when Christ was willing to suffer unjustly. When he was reviled, he did not vow in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. We might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. Look at all that God accomplished through his son when his son was willing to suffer wrongly. You were straying like sheep, but you've now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Likewise, and we're still on the same subject here. It's a terrible chapter break. Wives, be subject to your own husbands. That's the theme. It started up in verse 13. Every human institution. And then he deals first with slaves. And then he talks to wives. Why? So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, you want to talk about evangelistic and apologetic power, it comes in suffering unjustly and bearing good fruit in the face of evil. That's what Peter's saying again, and again, and again, and again. And, and that's, that's the point. Um, J- John Piper tells a story that he got from Richard Wormbrandt about an evangelist in India who was going around from town to town, village to village, sharing the gospel. And he, he had, had a, after a long day of walking, he's poor, he's barefoot, he gets to the, the town. He goes in, he, he starts trying to share Christ, and the people mock him, and they drive him out of town. And he leaves town discouraged, and he falls asleep under a tree on the outskirts of town. And he wakes up to find all of the town gathered around him. And he doesn't know if they're about to kill him or stone him or what. And he asks, and, 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 the, and someone from the town, the, the town leader says, we came outside to see what type of man you were. And when we saw the blisters on your feet, we knew that you were a holy man. We want to listen to what you have to say now. 
that's the type of compelling loving your enemies. Or think of Silas and Paul in jail, arrested unjustly, and then God supernaturally causes every door in the prison to open. And what do they do? They know that if they leave, the jailer will be killed. Potentially his whole family as well. And they stay, and the guy is so undone, but why would you do this to me? He falls down. <laughs> what must you do to be saved? There's a tremendous, tremendous apologetic and evangelistic power we see again and again in Scripture and even in history of people willingly enduring mistreatment for the sake of conscience and how God can use that to crumble proud, obstinate hearts and bring people to himself. That, that's, I think, the theme, the point. Wendell. Matt, Mike. Wait for that mic. Who's Mike? Anyway, uh, probably just because I'm old, I, I, I don't... I see how that can answer, address Donna's question, but may I, maybe I misunderstood. Uh, when Donna, you said you, you, you said you thought you failed at, with your mother, or well, I, I think it's important to understand uh, in, in one thing regard is that if, if you talked to your mother, spoke the gospel to her, and, and the, the question was about her salvation, uh, you know, and being that way, uh, you didn't fail. You, you succeeded. It's not up to you to save your mother. And, and I know you know that, but it, we, it's easy to get caught up in that. And I think this relates as well to the cost of doing that. In, later in Luke, in uh, chapter 12, verses... Uh, well, it's uh, verse 49. The cost... Uh, Jesus talked about the cost of discipleship, mm-hmm. and he's asked about, uh, he says, I, I didn't come here to, uh, let's see, I, I don't want to misstate this. I came to send fire on the earth. It says, uh, do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. And he's talking about exactly the cost that uh, Jeremy's talk, the sermon this morning was on. There is, there's going to be cost for that. And a lot of times we, I know I've been really guilty of that in the past about uh, not, not wanting to cause division uh, so that sometimes I don't have the courage to uh, um, tell my family or others about Christ because there is a cost. But, you know, um, that's the cost that I think we're talking about here that there's going to cause division if, if it's done right and if you do our only job is to tell others about Christ. Uh, so I, I think I don't think you failed. I really don't. So. Well, I, I think it's also Wendell, like one of those things where Paul can say to the Thessalonians, "As you as you are loving, abound in love even more." So as you are suffering and as you're putting up in this treatment, in one sense there is a sense in which um, we can always be told, "Persevere, do it even more." Do, this is what I'm trying to get at. This is, an, this is a sense in which it is an ideal. You know, I mean, it's not something where to come along and oh, you, you know, you didn't turn the cheek. But we're all aiming. We get back up and we feel and we keep trying to do it more and more and more. So Paul can say, "You're loving, love even more," and I'd say, "You're loving your enemies, love them even more." You know, so so if Donna is convicted that she could have put up with more or whatever, I don't want to remove that. I want to say, "Yeah, yeah, do it more." But I agree with Wendell. It's not. It's not um, binary, okay, then you failed. 
you know. Um, so, but love your mother even more. You know that 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 would be where I'd go with that. Um, okay, good good question. Any other thoughts, questions? Yes, sir. We need a microphone. And since most people don't know you, can you give your name? Mike Evans. It's my first time here, but yeah, yeah. Your sermon. I had my thirteen year old was sitting with me and. Your sermon got me asked a pretty tough question uh, during the sermon. He looked up and he said, how do you love ISIS? And I gave him an answer. She wrote something down on paper and handed it mm. to me. Read. I don't know what her answer was yet. But So since I was put on the spot because of your sermon, <laughs> I'm going to put you on the spot right back. <laughs> okay, how do you love ISIS? Let me, let me say a couple of things. I, wanted to, I, mean, I hope I made this clear in the message. And go back to Luke 3. Jesus is giving an ethic to his disciples. This is not an ethic for national policy. Um, that's the first statement. Um, this is an individual ethic for disciples of Christ. J Jesus makes it clear, Paul in Romans 13, the government bears the sword, is to restrain evil, to punish the evildoer. And I think you can love ISIS. First thing I'd say is this. You can love ISIS and pray that God use the sword of Caesar to stop terrorist activity and to punish and in, in places to inflict justice. You, you can do both. It's not either or. Well, I love them, so, okay, God bless them. Um, you can love them and do that. I'm not in Luke 3 because I'm talking, so hold on. Let me get to Luke 3. Um, Luke's already given us, and this gets back to the notion that the biblical authors aren't going to contradict themselves. The, uh, John the Baptist, and in verse 10, the crowd's asked him, what shall we do? He's just been calling them all to repentance. And he said, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. That's kind of similar to what Jesus just said. Um, tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. And the soldier asked him. Now here's the chance. If Christians are called the strict pacifism, if they are, I don't believe they are, and here's his chance to say then... Quit the army. Soldiers are the simultaneous policemen. They, they kill people, or they're authorized to kill people. And at times, they're trained. Well, not at times. They are trained to kill people. What shall we do? He said to them, do not extort money from everyone, anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. So apparently, a Christ follower who responds to John the Baptist in faith can continue to conduct himself as a soldier or policeman, Right? So that's what I'm getting at. I'm saying this is a personal ethic. This isn't, this, isn't, this isn't like a national ethic or a political ethic. This is an individual ethic. So on the one hand, I want to affirm the, the government's job, Romans 13, that it is to repay the evildoer and to restrain evil. And I want to prey on the governments of the world to restrain all types of evil, including terrorism. That's the first piece. The second piece would be to guard my heart from hating them. So on the one hand, I am fully committed to whatever I can do to stop terrorism from happening to do that. I want to guard my heart from hating those people. I want to remember that could be me. I've talked to people who've served in Afghanistan who said you, you, they came back and the hardest thing for them is I pretty much just hate them all. And, and and that's the challenge, right? So I can, I can oppose somebody without hating them. I can, I can, let's, let's take the little mini terrorist activity. One of my children is trying to terrorize my other child. Now I can certainly intervene. I can certainly stop them. In my heart, hopefully I don't hate them. 
I think that'd be their stance. Take the parable of the Good Samaritan. The Jews and the Samaritans despised each other. The Jews would despise the Samaritans so much, they would walk around Samaria, adding a couple extra days to a travel by foot to not even get the dust from Samaria on their feet. And in the parable of the Good Samaritan, that'd be like a Palestinian helping a Jew. That would be the level of, of antithesis and animosity. Jesus gets a tax collector and a zealot as his disciples. The zealots were the terrorists. They were the ones who were stabbing Romans, Roman soldiers and trying to take the government down with guerrilla warfare. You got that guy, and you got a guy who sold out to the state who's a tax collector as Jesus' disciples. So it's, it's, I, can be, I am strongly opposed to ISIS, the organization, and its intended goals and its stated goals and the way it does stuff. And I just pray to God that he would soften my heart so that if I ever met one, I wouldn't hate him. That I'd show kindness to him. That if my enemy was thirsty, I'd give him a glass of water. That, so, so I don't think it's either or. You can pray that God would stop them. That God, but you can also pray that God would convert them, that the gospel would get there, that, that they would come to their senses and, and escape the snare of the devil and not continue in the course they're on. I don't think it's either. I mean, ultimately, God loves and God hates at the same time. Um, he's angry with the wicked every day, and yet he loves us. And that love and hate ultimately will resolve itself in eternity, where God's no longer angry with us in any way in heaven. Because every day when I sin, I get a father's anger. I don't get a judge's anger. But every day when I sin, I get a heavenly father who, you know, Hebrews 12 says our earthly fathers would discipline us for our good. How much more should we receive the discipline of the father of our souls? And yet in hell, that's resolved where there is no more mercy, there is no more kindness, there is no more patience, there is just pure, unadulterated justice. That's a long answer, but that'd be my thought, is loving them doesn't mean not trying to... And there's another sense in which what Jesus deals with is personal assault and personal injury. And I think it's a very different thing if someone's doing it to someone else. Whereas I might hope that if someone came up and, and punched me in the face, I would hope that I wouldn't start beating them up. If I saw someone doing that to someone else, I think I would try to stop it. Jesus says, no love has, no greater love as a man than he lays down his life for his neighbor. So I want to separate the personal um, ethic of me, what you do to me, and nothing Jesus mentioned was life-threatening, um, painful, humiliating, um, hard, and my responsibility to my neighbor. Um, which is which is a different. That, am I rambling, or does that make any sense? It's a tough question. It's a real tough question. How do you love ISIS, Greg, and then Ron? Well, I was just going to say that one of the things that helps us have a little better ability to love even the ISIS members, uh, which all uh, yeah, certainly that's difficult, but is to remember keep it keep this in perspective on who we are, right? Who we were. Right. Uh, we were them. Yeah. Uh, we, we're only different from them because God reached down and selected us. Yeah. Uh, and until he selects them, they're acting the way they know how. Yeah, the Canaanites are acting like Canaanites. Yeah. Yeah. Ron. You mentioned... Um, are we not, are Christians not to defend themselves if they are attacked? Oh, that's, that's another good question. Are Christians not to defend themselves if they are attacked? 
I'm not convinced the answer to that's entirely no. I mean, um, I, used, I, I, I wrestled going through high school, and, I'm, and what Jesus is talking about here is retaliation, vengeance. Um, if somebody came and tried to attack me, and I thought I could stop them. I might try to stop them. It, it, this is where, I, admittedly, it can start to get tough. On the other hand, I need to walk into that situation thinking, at the end of the day, I'm willing to get mugged. At the end of the day, I'm willing for you to take my wallet. Like, you know, I, I think that's where you do need a certain amount of wisdom. I mean, with me, if my family's with me, that's going to really change things a lot than if I'm by myself. You know what I mean? Um, so I, I wouldn't want to give an absolute no, thou shalt not. But I certainly think it needs to come from an attitude of, at the end of the day, I'm willing to be. You can, at the end of the day, if I lose my wallet, I have a treasure in heaven. I, I, like this isn't about heck no, you're not. That that's that's the issue. Um, anyone want to jump into that? Can Christians not defend themselves? Jeremy, this is this is part of what makes this really really tough, though. Zeb, two things just to. I to wonder talk if Zeb about. has an opinion on this. Does Zeb have I, an opinion I do have on an this? Opinion on this? Oh wow! And I've also got the mic, so I can I can just make mine the official. No. Um, <laughs> No, um, the two things to, to mention in this, mm. the, the parallel passage on the Sermon on the Mount speaks of specifically not just being struck, but being struck on the, on the right cheek, mm-hmm. turned it, turned it in the, the left also. Um, the idea there is not that you're simply being hit, but it's a, it's a backhand. You're getting slapped backhanded. So it's an insult. Um, is the the primary? Oh, I, I I certainly agree. That's what Matthew's talking about. It, yeah, and, and as you already mentioned, that there wasn't a a life threatening aspect right, to this. Right, right. Um, and then on top of that, the other co- part of the context is that this is in this isn't simply anybody just comes up and randomly starts say shooting up a place, something like a yeah. if you're at the mall, somebody starts shooting. Um, it's specifically for those who have been identified as Christ. The context is pretty clear, as you already pointed out, that this is for the sake of being a Christian, not just a general okay. downside. But um, the other thing is that this is, like in the Old Covenant law, there's very, very clear um, teachings regarding what a what you are able to do if you are attacked or if you think you're being attacked. Are you going um, third use on me? I'm... Not no, I'm okay, saying okay, I'm saying okay. that one cannot claim that God is being inconsistent here no. by saying, Well, Jesus says that you're not supposed to, but God of the Old Testament says you can. So it's it, there's But it a, is possible an, it is possible that a geopolitical righteous and just law for what people can do can have a higher personal ethic within it, right? I suppose. Okay. Sorry. Sorry, Zeb and I are having our own little conversation. No, no, I no, at the end of the day, Zeb, I, I think I agree. Um I, I just want to, I don't want to get a scenario where somebody mugs you. Hold on. Are you doing this because I'm a Christian? No. Okay, then. And let them have it. Yeah. Um, but no, it's certainly within the context, there is a sense in which that, that's easier. Yeah. Hold on. Are you, are you doing this because I'm a Christian? You know, um, and, and then no. Okay, good. Then I can let you have it. But no, no, fair enough. Um, and, and let me say this without any hesitation. Somebody tries to do my wife or kids harm, I will do whatever I can to stop that. Um, there's no question in my mind. These aren't life-threatening situations. And this doesn't mean you have to put up with it in every situation. I mean, Paul escapes a town by being let down a wall in a basket. But Paul is also perfectly willing to get beaten and flogged and attacked. So this, again, doesn't mean you're looking for, like, this. the balance here is, on the one hand, you're not more righteous the more people mistreat you. But you are willing to be mistreated. And you're not simply doing whatever it takes to avoid that. 
it's, it's, it's challenging. I saw a number of hands though at the last question. Yes, James from Ames. She's doing really well. You mentioned about protecting your family, but wasn't Peter crucified with his family um, when he was? Oh, yeah. I mean, church history, this isn't in Scripture. Peter was crucified with his, his family, um, church history would tell us, upside down next to his wife and daughter. Yeah. Um, and, and I'll give you some other, um, some other examples. In the, in the book, early book of Acts, they, they arrest Peter and John, and there's thousands of Christians present, plenty to stop the soldiers. We're not letting you take them. And Peter and James, Peter and John go, and they get flogged, and they rejoice for the privilege of doing that. When Peter wants to fight back and cuts off Malchus's ear, Jesus says, no, no, you're going to live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. And there's a sense in which, um, there's a sense in which that's true. I mean, even, if, even as I may defend someone else's life, if I'm going to pick up the sword for my friend, I shouldn't be surprised if I get killed, and I shouldn't really complain much about it. There's a sense in which, okay, you know, don't, don't be terribly surprised if that happens. I mean, if I'm going to, if I'm going to, I mean, not that I shouldn't try to defend my neighbor, but by even by entering into that, there's a sense in which, okay, you know, that that's, don't be surprised if that's the way things turn out, you know? And, um, but Jesus does say no greater life love is anyone that he lays out his love life for his neighbor. So there's clearly an ethic of love where one of the most loving things I can do is lay down my life on your behalf. So, so yeah, the, like, I, like I said in the message, I know there's all sorts of, of complications that make this tricksy, and I put locks on my door, you know? Um, <laughs> and, 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 and so I get that this is tough. What I was hoping to do in the message is rather than spend the entire time, well, what about this exception? What about this exception? I, I, I fully grant there are, there are some exceptions. But exceptions are precisely that. They're the exception, not the rule. And I just wanted to look at the rule square in the face and not blink. And it's, it'll wreck you. But yeah, ab absolutely. I'm, a, I'm not a Christian pacifist, nor, um, nor would I advocate you know, strict Christian pacifism. Um, other questions? We've got five minutes. Yes. Oh. Oh. So I... I uh, think that a lot of this is impossible for us mm -hmm. to do apart from the spirit changing yeah. and and completely making us a new person. Um, and something I've been really challenged on lately is the idea of doing whatever I do for the glory of God. Mm. And you mentioned here that Jesus was appealing to our nature of a reward, being reward-based yeah. people. Yeah. Do you think he was just appealing to our our human nature, or do you think he was actually advocating us? Yes, I, I do. And no, let me let me answer that. Um, the the person who probably I think that's the best treatment of this topic is John Piper with this whole Christian hedonism thing. And I'm I'm sold that I think he's right on. Again and again and again, the scripture will put together. I'll I'll bungle the C.S. Lewis quote. The C.S. Lewis quote is, God's rebuke to us is not that our appetites and desires are too great, but that they're too small. We're far too easily satisfied. We're like a child in the slums content to play with mud pies because he doesn't understand what is meant when he is offered a weekend at the sea. If we take the scripture seriously, the pleasures, the rewards, the joys of God in God, and I think the key is the reward is God, not things God gives. 
if it's just the things God gives, you're an idolater. I want the goodies, I want the stuff. But if you're like David, my soul and my heart thirst and hunger for you, I want God. You're not, you're, you're a worshiper. And, and so, so I, I see again and again, scripture, not what Piper's kicking back against is the debtor's ethic because of what God did. Can't you start to pay him back? And, and he doesn't want us to view God as the benefactor. Daniel's opening prayer this morning, we come like to a fruit tree. How do you glorify a fruit tree? You take a bite of the apple and you go, "Mm." you know, you're coming to get, you're coming to receive, you're coming to be blessed. Now, what you're doing is you're glorifying God. When we sing about how much we love him, how good he is to us, we bring him glory. So I, like, I've tried to make the point, even Jesus operates from that principle. For the joy set before him, he endured the shame of the cross. Why does Jesus ultimately go to the cross? Not because he's a sadist, but because the pleasure he gets in pleasing his father and the pleasure he gets from having his name exalted above all names and the pleasure he gets in saving those he loves is worth it. And so you got to do it the right way. I mean, otherwise it, it gets ugly. But as long as you make it clear that we need to be operating from a biblically informed desire for God, then I think the scriptures again and again lay out, seek that reward, seek that reward, seek that for your you can so twist that into the prosperity gospel where it's money and health, and then it gets corrupted real fast. I mean, if you want to push back, push back. But no, if, if you do it in a Piperian sense, I'm fully on board. Um, if that makes any Or Jonathan Edwards in sense, I'm fully on board. But um, I don't think there's anything necessarily corrupt. I mean, ultimately, isn't the gospel choose life? That's the ultimate self-interest. <laughs> you don't want to go to hell. Flee the wrath to come. It's assuming self-interest. It's just the right type of self-interest. And here's a self-interest that'll let me let you punch me in the face. You know, but it's not as though Jesus just says, suck it up. That's what I'm trying to get. You've got, the only way we're ever going to do this is if we put our eyes on the greater pleasure, the greater joy, the greater reward. It's the only way our hands will start to open up and let go of the things in this life is when we've got our eyes on a true reward. And, and to try to just tell people to do it otherwise, I think, is, is impossible. Um, that answer that? No? Okay. Anyone else? Did you want to go or do you want to go? And then we got to go. Okay. I just had one question. Um, I don't believe it. <laughs> Probably. Anyways, okay. my question, you brought up um, when you were talking about don't demand your rights. Yeah. And then you were talking about how Jesus when he was yeah. struck, said that like it was wrong. So yeah. how do you practically speak out against mistreatment without demanding your rights? That's a great question. I got a quote just for that. Oh, perfect. Okay. Many, this is uh, from one commentator. I, I had to see, you may find this hard to believe. I had a whole lot more to say this morning that I didn't say. I did. I did. Um, many consider Jesus' commands impractical and even absurd. The 20th century was powerfully altered, however, by courageous observance of this essential teaching. Gandhi's radical response to injustice, which he inherited from Tolstoy and bequeathed to Martin Luther King Jr., was to become naked, i.e. put himself in defenseless posture vis-a-vis a powerful aggressor in order to shame them into repentance by the evil in their hearts. The results of Gandhi's unconventional behavior was the liberation of India from British rule. The results of the similar behavior on the part of King, massive gains in civil rights for African Americans in the United States, the peaceful demonstrations that issued from a decade-long prayer movement 
for peace in Protestant churches in former East Germany broke ground not only in the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, but the collapse of the Soviet Union. The Truth and Reconciliation Movement played the critical role in dismantling apartheid in South Africa and in sparing the nation from a bloodbath of racial revenge. In each instance, powerful and systematic structures of oppression were undermined by non-reciprocal, non-violent practices that were informed by and modeled on the essential teaching of Jesus to love one's enemies. I think there's a way to say, without the anger, without the indignation, this isn't right. And, and Paul's able to do it, and Jesus is able to do it. And it's, but we all know in our spirit, you did that to me, me of all people. Right. And that's, I think, the issue to guard against. It's certainly scripture gives us warrant to, you know, someone tries to come and take me. I don't think that's right. And do you mind if I appeal to one of the judges and see what they think? I mean, I got no problem with the bakers appealing the decision to shut them down. At the end of the day, I hope they're ready to live with it. You see what I'm saying? It's, it's, there's, I think there's totally room to be like, hey, I don't think this is right, and I don't want you to take my stuff. But at the end of the day, okay. You know, I, I think that's the $8 billion issue. Or if you're like, I'll be darned if they're going to take my thing from me. I work, put this together, sweat on my hands, and I'm letting nobody. That's, that's the difference of attitude. So yeah, Paul, they want to take him to, Felix wants to please the Jews. And so they, he wants to send Paul to Jerusalem to be tried. And Paul says, hey, I'm a Roman citizen, and I'm, I'm making use of my right to appeal to Caesar. Now Felix goes, yeah, sure. I mean, Paul doesn't get in his face and, you know, um, and even the, even Peter and even, um, no, Paul when they're beaten, and then the officials find out he's a Roman citizen, and they want to set him free quietly because, like, uh-oh, we beat a Roman citizen. Paul says, oh, no, 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 you took us in pub publicly, you should let us go publicly. I mean, there's even room for that. This isn't just. If you're going to publicly take us in and beat us, publicly release us. And Paul's doing that in part because he wants people to know he's not a criminal. So when he goes and preaches the gospel, they don't say, oh, there's that criminal with this weird message. So there's absolutely room for that. What Jesus says, and I think the key is the word demand. Demand your property back. I don't think there's anything wrong when you lend someone money to say, hey, can you, you can pay me back? It's the demanding. It's the guy who got forgiven $5 million who grabs the guy who was in 50 and starts throttling him. That's what Jesus is forbidding, that attitude. So, okay. We've gone over time. Thank you much. We can pick this up next week. This was very, very hard passage. Thank you for bearing with me with patience and turning the other cheek. <laughs> <laughs>